Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. My name's Travis. I'm the lead pastor around here. Um, as family, uh, sometimes here at Radiant, things can be pretty informal. So some people are into that, some people aren't. If you're into it, we're glad to have you. If you're not, there's maybe better churches to be at than this one. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. We're really glad you're here. We are, and um, you know, <laughs> this is this has been just the perfect tee up uh, to my my sermon this morning. I, I remember in the month of August, and 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 uh, I only tell this story because it's 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 been long enough that I can now laugh about it. But in the month of August, we, we forgot to receive an offering twice in the same month. I don't know what happened, but it just failed to make it onto the agenda. And uh, the second time, by the time we had realized what we had done, because Sean was flashing cards at me, <laughs> they were saying, hey, look, if you don't receive an offering, we're not going to get paid, you know. And... By the time we realized what we had done, it was kind of too late. So when I wrapped up my sermon, I said, hey, if you came ready to give this morning, um, we'll be, we'll have pastors post up at the doors and you can give on your way out. So in an attempt to salvage the mistake we had made, I, I prayed, I closed the service, I hopped down, I grabbed one of the baskets that we don't have this morning, and I stood right there next to the door, and I stood there holding the basket as people walked out, and it was awkward. <laughs> and, and, and this is what I started to feel so uncomfortable standing there. I felt like people were treating me like a homeless man, like, 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 sorry, I don't have any money. I gave, it was like people, people wanted to tell me that they gave last week. You know, I gave last week, I promise. It was like the eye contact alone as I'm holding the basket was really uncomfortable. So this is what I started doing to try to get rid of the awkwardness that I was experiencing and to help people feel a little more comfortable. I just looked away. And I started, I started announcing, again, to, to help people who, who I was perceiving were, were uncomfortable. I started announcing, I won't look. I'm not looking. I won't look, and I'm not looking. And I left, and I started to, you know, I left thinking, well, that was awkward. We should have received an offering the way we usually receive an offering. Um, let's not let that happen again, and... 
As I reflected on how awkward I felt, I started to realize how unlike Jesus that was. How unlike Jesus I was being as I held that basket, looked away, and kept announcing, I won't look, I won't look. In the story that Mike just referred to, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. So here we get this picture, right, of Jesus pulling up a chair next to where the offerings were taken. He camps out, and he's not spying, he's staring. How close is he? Close enough to see not just who was giving, but how much they were giving. Jesus wasn't there saying, hey, I'll look away. He wasn't there saying with his disciples, hey, let's get together. We'll act like we're having a conversation. But as we're having a conversation, I want to keep my eye on who's giving and how much they're giving. No, that's not what happens. He sits down and he watches. This is really, really deliberate on Jesus' part. This is unapologetic. And this is really uncomfortable. I know. I experienced it firsthand. He's close enough to know what this widow put in. He's close enough to know that it's actually copper coins that were dropped. And then, after seeing it take place, he gets all of his disciples together. And it's this teaching moment. You wouldn't believe what I just saw. Again, he doesn't downplay it. Just to add to the awkwardness of the moment, he gets his disciples together. He's like, you wouldn't believe what just happened. I want to tell you what happened, and then I want you to write down what happened because I want everyone to remember this widow as a model of what it means to be generous. And Jesus seems to be making a point here, right? And the point is this. What we do with what we have is his business. What we do with what we have is his business. He cares, right? It's painfully apparent in this passage that Jesus considers it his business. The other thing we learn is that Jesus isn't impressed with large sums. There were a bunch of zeros being dropped into the offering, but what got his attention was not a large sum, it was a large percentage. Jesus isn't impressed with large sums that cost us nothing. 
He's not impressed with zeros. He's impressed with percentages that communicate our devotion to him. He also seems to be saying that he's not as concerned with your comfort as I am. Jesus is not concerned with your comfort. And unfortunately, as churches, we are, and so sometimes we avoid tough topics. Jesus pulls up a lawn chair and just stares. 15% of his recorded words had to do with money, possessions, and wealth. He talked about money more than any other single subject. Why? Because Jesus was some money-grubbing prosperity preacher, right? Absolutely not, as evidenced by his homelessness. <laughs> as evidenced by his homelessness and borrowed grave. That's not what Jesus was about. What he was about was our hearts, our devotion, and our worship. And money... And possessions, right, are an incredible glimpse into what we value. We get a really good look at what's important to us when we look at our bank statements, our credit card statements, and what we spend. He, Jesus said this, this famous line, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is essentially saying, you show me your checkbook, and I'll show you where your heart is. You show me your bank statements, and I'll show you what's important to you. And I, I was, as I thought about this this week, this week's been a tough, tough week for me. And as I continue on and, and read you the scriptures that I read this week, um, you'll understand why it was a tough week for me. But I think that as a church, we should make a habit of comparing our bank statements to our statements of faith. And if our bank statements don't line up with our statements of faith, I think you should consider that maybe you don't actually believe what you say you believe. If you can't see a connection or a correlation or you don't see your statements of faith in your bank statements, they might not be your statements of faith. Even if it says in God we trust on your bills, that might not be the case. I'm just throwing it out. Just consider it. Just putting it out there. We give effortlessly to the things that we look to for salvation. It's effortless. It flows. We give effortlessly to the things that give our lives meaning. We don't have, no preacher needs to get up and rah, rah, rah. No one needs to enroll you into giving to the things that give your life meaning. It just happens. So if Jesus is the one who saves you, if Jesus is the most important thing in your life, right? Then your money, your money easily flows to his work. Your money easily flows to his people. And your money, your money easily flows to his causes. But if you're looking to status, if you're looking to appearance, if you're looking to education, 
if you're looking to comfort, and if you're looking to pleasure to save you, well, then your money will effortlessly flow to those things. You don't, again, need to be charged by someone from the pulpit. It just happens. So today, I'm going to talk about what we have and what we do with what we have. And I'm going to do that because it matters to Jesus. It matters to him. Jesus doesn't just do things for us. He demands things from us. He doesn't just do things for us. He demands things from us. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He does rescue us. Everything that Jared just said is true. He saves us. He is our Savior, and He is also Lord. He doesn't just do things. He demands things from us. So this today may be a little bit uncomfortable uh, for you. This week was a little bit uncomfortable uh, for me. We're, of course, in a series of sermons on the vision and values of Radiant Church. And we've talked about beholding Jesus, which is something we want to do, and then putting his brilliance on display, which is something that we want to do as a radiant church. And we're going to put his brilliance on display by living lives that are obedient to his word. This was modeled for us um, by, by Jesus. We're going to put his brilliance on display by being surrendered to the spirit. Again, Jesus, our model for a spirit-led, spirit-filled life. And we're going to put his brilliance on display by being devoted to his mission. And the three things we're going to do as a group of people devoted to his mission is that we're going to seek, we're going to share, and we're going to serve. And last week we talked about how we're going to seek, we're going to pursue, we're going to instigate, we're going to go after. We read those famous parables, the, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, and talked about how Jesus has again modeled this for us. We seek. We're going after it. We're not just waiting for people to come to us, but we're going to be like Jesus and go after. We're going to seek those that are lost. And so this morning, I want to talk about how we share. And I think Mike prayed it. Uh, Mike and I have not uh, talked, and that was um, really confirming uh, this morning because I want to be a church marked by generosity. I want to be exactly what Mike prayed this morning, that we would be known as a group of people who share. Jesus was generous. Jesus was generous, and we put his brilliance on display as a generous church when we share. When Paul asks the church in Corinth to give to the church in Jerusalem because there's a famine in Jerusalem, he doesn't enroll them he doesn't look to take a huge offering by telling them, this is how bad it is. You wouldn't believe how bad it is in Jerusalem. There's a terrible famine, and this is what's happening. He doesn't enroll, he doesn't invite the huge offering by talking about how terrible it is in Jerusalem and how this church in Corinth should give. He enrolls them into taking a huge offering by reminding them of what Jesus had done for them. That this is not an issue of what's going on in Jerusalem. This is an issue of Jesus. This is a gospel issue. The way we give 
the way we share is a reflection of what Jesus has done for us. And so he's he says to this church, I'm not commanding you guys. This isn't something you have to do. I'm reminding you. I'm not commanding you. I'm reminding you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I want to read it again. That's fantastic. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to give. I'm asking you to give to the church in Jerusalem because there's a famine there. But I'm not commanding you and I'm not enrolling you by talking about how bad it is there in that church. I'm reminding you of Jesus and the gospel. It's an issue of Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. We know that the early church followed in Jesus' footsteps, right? The, the early church took Rome over with irrational generosity. The early church was not known for their theology. They weren't known for what they were against. They were known for how they gave. That's what got the attention of Rome. They ended up with a place of leverage in society because of no strings attached giving. That's what got the attention of Rome. That's what gave the Christian church a place of leverage in society, is their generosity. Charity was the name of the game, right? Which is giving to relieve physical or financial distress without expecting anything in return. This is foreign to the Roman world. And Christians burst on the scene following in the footsteps of Jesus and they're generous and it's getting everyone's attention. One first century writer describes Christians like this. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of all things. The Roman Emperor Julian wrote this, Their success lies in their charity to strangers. Christians support both their own poor and ours as well. Unfortunately, and I don't need to go on and on about this, you've heard this before, and it hasn't changed anything. Unfortunately, generosity is, is not something that marks the American church. Last year, 25% of professing American Protestants gave away nothing. About 5% of Christians provide 60% of the money to churches and religious groups. 20% of Christians account for 86% of all giving. The median annual giving for a Christian is $200. Just over half a percent of after-tax income. And then you've probably heard this famous statistic. It dates a little bit 
But in 2009, we spent more money on dog food than we did on missions. And if we, this church, if we're going to put the brilliance of Jesus on display, if we're going to behold him for who he is and put his brilliance on display, we're going to be we're going to do it by being a church that's marked by generosity and an unmaterialistic lifestyle. Let me read to you this charge from 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through this passage. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to work. Search me. Know me. See if there is anything that needs to change in me. I welcome your conviction in my life. Welcome your conviction in this house. We want it. Without it, there can be no conversion. There can be no change without you first pointing things out to us. So we we want that. We don't want to hide from that. We don't want to silence you. We want to respond to you. We don't want to harden our hearts. We want to be obedient to what you're saying to us. Help us to see Jesus in this passage. Help us to understand what you're saying to us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you guys, <clears throat> have you guys heard of the Jesus Seminar? A group of, of scholars, they come together each year and they discuss the sayings of Jesus and they vote on their authenticity. So a group of scholars from North America get together, they go one by one through the sayings of Jesus, and then they vote on their authenticity. And you can vote one of four ways. You read a statement from the Gospels, and you can vote one of four ways. Certainly inauthentic, meaning Jesus didn't say it. Probably inauthentic, meaning maybe Jesus said it. Probably authentic, meaning maybe Jesus did say it. And certainly authentic, we know that Jesus said that. When I first heard about the Jesus Seminar, I remember I I read about it in a book by N.T. Wright. And I was, uh, I I remember, I I read the headiest books while on the toilet. I remember sitting on the toilet (laughs) For some reason, maybe it's because there's no getting away from it and you can't put it down and it's better than just sitting there. So all the thickest books are next to the toilet. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I'm I'm upset. This is unbelievable to me that guys would get together 
that they would get together, read the sayings of Jesus and the Gospels, and, and, and vote this way. This is upsetting to me. Now, what's more upsetting to me is that they would um, accuse me or um, not just accuse me, but that they would mock me for being a person of faith. When they are having to exhibit the same type of faith as they sit there and go through the sayings of Jesus and decide what he really said and what he didn't. How do they know? You know, the only thing I have in common with them is that neither one of us know. And both of us are exhibiting faith by either saying, yes, Jesus said this and I believe what's recorded in the Gospels, or no, he didn't. So it's not that they're sitting there being selective, it's that they're mocking me for being a person of faith as they sit there and pretend to know what they don't know. So, I was upset. And the more, the more I pondered this, the more I thought, you know what, we're guilty of this very same thing. We're selective as we read the commands of Christ. Now, we agree that Jesus has said these things. If they're in red letters, we believe that Jesus actually said these things. But we're selective in a different way, right? As I read the Gospels, sometimes I'll say to myself, that's certainly not for me. That might be for me. That probably is for me. And that's certainly for me. Certainly, God's got my number here. Certainly, He means what He says. We're all guilty of being selective as we read Scripture, right? And I read things often, and I think to myself, this cannot apply to me. This certainly is not for me. Certainly, Jesus doesn't know what He's talking about. This is no way to live your life. I can't do this. There's no way that Jesus means what he says when he says this to me. No way this is for me. And every time I read this word in Scripture, I immediately ignore what follows. Every time I read the word rich, I immediately ignore everything that follows that. How many of you have, have heard th this parable when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And thought to yourself, sweet. I'm golden. I'm cruising through, okay? I can do wretch. I can identify with that word, but I don't do rich. I can't identify with that word. So, Sucks for that guy, but I should be able to get through the eye of that needle because I am certainly not rich. This word doesn't apply to me. This word doesn't apply to anyone in my church. And so we'll then ignore what follows this word because we're not rich, right? None of us would admit that we're rich, but we all know someone who is, right? I'm not rich, but I know someone who is. I mean, it's like rich. I mean, that's probably what? That's probably like the top 
Rich, that's like the top 1%. Which is exactly what you are if you make more than $48,000 a year. The top 1%. So imagine my shock this week when I found out that all the passages that I had ignored because they followed or started with the word rich were maybe for me. And that I was supposed to lean in and not lean out. If you make over $40,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world. And some of you students are going like, I'm far from that. Check this out. If you make $1,500 a year, you're in the top 20% of wage earners in the world. So not even the students in here, not even the poor in here, are off the hook, right? If you have ever upgraded anything, you're rich. Like as in, you went with a perfectly you know, functioning phone to the store to get another phone that does essentially the same thing, but faster, bigger, better, brighter. You're rich. If you've ever upgraded a thing, you're rich. If you've ever driven a car to a car lot, left that car there and driven off in a nicer, newer car and left them with money, you're rich. If you've ever stood in front of a closet and said, I have nothing to wear, <laughs> you're rich. If you got to this morning decide what shoes better went with your outfit, you're rich. You're in the top of wage earners in the world. You cannot ignore what follows this word. You're rich. So I know this is hard for you because you're going like, I am not rich. I'm not rich. I'm far from it. And let's just settle with this. You might not feel rich because feeling rich has to do with margin. People who feel rich have margin in their lives. And you don't feel rich because you have no margin. You're on the hook. And all you feel is pressure. So you might not feel rich, and I don't care how you feel. You are rich. You are the rich of the world. You should lean into scriptures that say anything about the rich because that is who you are. And so, yeah, I had a difficult week as I thought, maybe I'm not sliding through the eye of that needle. Maybe something that I thought, boy, I'm glad that's not for me, and I'm glad that's not for my church, in fact is for me, and in fact is for our church. This word rich is such like an elusive term, right? And... If you don't think that you're rich, you're exhibiting the very signs that in fact you are rich. Which is denial. All rich people live in denial. So if you're still here going, that does not apply to me, man. I know it. You're exhibiting traits of a rich person by living in denial. Gallup did a survey and they asked the question, of Americans, what is rich? 
And the average came back at $150,000 a year. That if you make $150,000 a year, you're rich. But I know there's people in here who make $150,000 a year who would go, heck no. Heck no, I'm not rich. Don't describe me like that. You're living in denial. So then they asked people who made thirty to $35,000 a year what they would define as rich, and they said $75,000 a year. If you make $75,000 a year, you're rich. And there are people in this room who make $75,000 a year who are going, do not tell me I'm rich, right? Money Magazine pulled their subscribers. And you can just imagine who the subscribers are of Money Magazine. Who subscribes to Money Magazine? <laughs> Cop to it right now. You can just... You can just imagine who reads Money Magazine, right? Well, they ask these guys, hey, what, how would you define rich? How much do you have or how much do you have to have in order to define yourself or to give yourself the title of rich? And these guys said $5 million in liquid assets. That's what you need. Not one, two, three, four million dollars. You need five mil in liquid assets and then, then you're rich. So it's this elusive idea, right? Those who make 75 are like, you kidding me? Is this happening at church right now? Those of you who make 150, you're like, it's not what you think it is. It's not like that. And those of you who make 5 mil or you have 5 mil in liquid access, it is that. And you just need to... And you need to fund this building project right now. <laughs> no, that's not true. What I'm trying to get at is this is an imaginary line. This is an imaginary line. And I don't know where you've drawn it, but once you get there, it will not be enough. It'll never be enough. It's funny how, like, no one applauds when I read this, you know. When I say, like, if you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah, God. You've blessed me, you know. It's like, what? No way. Back to 1 Timothy. Back to 1 Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world. That's you. Let's just pretend. So maybe you're still bucking me on this. Just pretend. Let's just practice being rich in case you ever do get rich. Just pretend you're the rich of the world. Okay? Command those. Paul's talking to his protege, Timothy, and he says, when you talk to rich Christians, talk to them like this. Command them. Command those who are rich in this present world. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. This is awesome. How does Paul know? He's not even there at this church. Why do we think that as our income goes up, our IQ goes up? Proverbs 30, verse 8. Write this down. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. 
Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I fear, the author says, that I'll have too much and I'll disown you. This is what happens for rich people, right? Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? I'm in need of nothing. Who is he? The, the writer is just saying, I, 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 if I get too much, I may become arrogant. Who's God? I'm in need of nothing. Don't let that happen to me, God. Don't let me have too much. Don't let me have too little. I want my daily bread because I don't want to be one of those people who says, who's the Lord? Yeah, I used to do that. I used to go to church. I used to need that. You know, I went through a tough time. People prayed for me, but, you know, I've, I've bounced back and I don't really need that anymore. Who's the Lord? I don't get it. What do I need him for? Don't be arrogant. He also says, command them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. When you become rich, let's pretend that you are, when you become wealthy, something happens, right? Paul's telling Timothy, when you talk to rich Christians, warn them about hope migration. Warn them that what happens when they get riches is they start to hope in riches. And they stop hoping in the one who richly provides. Tell tell rich Christians. Tell materialistic Christians. Tell those who are rich in your church to beware. Because with riches comes them putting their hope in those riches and not putting their hope in the one who richly provides. And it's so uncertain. Who would do this? Who would do this? Who would put their hope in riches and not put their hope in the one who richly provides? You be careful, rich people. Warn them. Command them. Tell them that what happens when they get stuff, what happens when they get wealth, is that they start to put their hope in that stuff. And when you put your hope in that stuff, you start to hoard. You're no longer generous because your hope is in it. Don't do it. Don't put your hope in what you have. Don't put your hope in riches. Put your hope in the one who richly provides. And it'll never never be a conscious decision that you make. I'm done with that. I'm done with you know, him, and I'm more into this stuff, these things. It'll never be a conscious decision that you make. It'll be very subtle. But what happens when you get more and more stuff is that you're never fully or finally satisfied. And you lead a discontent life, and you're not generous. Because your hope is in this stuff. You've got to hold on to this stuff. You hoard this stuff because you need this stuff. Right? Paul's saying, don't let your hope get attached 
or associated or wrapped up with stuff. Church. Rich church. Church in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Do not let your hope get wrapped up. Do not let it associate itself with. Do not let it partner with possessions. Why put your hope in riches when you can put your hope in the one who richly provides? Jesus, again, in his, you know, all these famous sayings about money, says, You cannot serve, right? Both God and money. You can have both God and money but you're going to serve one of them. You can't serve both God and money. Money is literally, in our culture, an antichrist. I wouldn't worry about Barack Obama if I were you. I'd worry about your checkbook. Okay? I'm serious. Anti, this Greek preposition, anti, it doesn't fundamentally mean against. It means instead of. So when we talk about the Antichrist, we're not talking about someone who's necessarily fundamentally against Christ. We're talking about something that's instead of Christ. An Antichrist is is a substitute for Christ in your life. And it might not have horns. And it might not be a political leader. A substitution instead of Christ in your life. You can trust riches. Am I right? You can look to riches to save you. You can think that security comes in money. And I think as a church, we, we're probably realizing that more, we're more downstream than we'd like to admit. Your hope is migrated. Your hope is in what you have. Your hope is in riches. You're looking to it for security. You're looking to it to save you. Don't do that. Don't let your hope migrate. So how do we do that? How do we stop this migration? We're way downstream. And we realize that we're hoping in riches and not in the one who richly provides. So what do we do? He goes on. Command them. This is what you say to the rich Christians. Do good. This is how you're going to break this. This is how you're going to stop putting your hope in riches and start putting your hope in the one who richly provides. Do good. Stop hoarding it. Open your hands with it and let it go. Do good. And then he says this, be rich. I love it. It's not that he comes in, he says, command them, tell the rich not to be rich. Tell the rich to be poor. What would you command the rich to do? If you were writing this letter, hey, Timothy, when you talk to the rich Christians, you you talk to them like this, and you tell them, you know, what would you tell them? And here's Timothy, right, being told by Paul, when you talk to rich Christians, tell them to be rich. Tell them to be rich in good deeds. That is above average. If you make above average income, that you should be above average in your good deeds. That it's not good enough, right? Why does Paul need to say this? 
I mean, doesn't it go without saying that those who make more give more? I mean, can't we just suppose? Don't, shouldn't we just assume that the people who have more give more? No, in fact, the exact opposite is true. The more you make, the less you give. Statistically, the more you make, the less you give. Percentage-wise. I know that there's zeros connected to it. But as we read earlier, Jesus isn't impressed with your zeros. He's not impressed with large sums. He's into percentage giving. What he's attracted to is this widow who goes all in. Right? And so what happens is when you make more, you think that by adding a couple zeros to the check that you're about to write gets you off the hook and it really costs you nothing. There's no sacrifice involved in it. And what seems to be getting Jesus' attention, and, and then he brings his disciples in, is this woman who gave a gift that cost. It cost her something. I want to read a, a long excerpt. A couple things. I'm just casting vision for being a generous people. There's not a lot of nuts and bolts to this. I printed this pamphlet called Power, Change, and Money, written by Tim Keller. It's fantastic. You can pick it up in the back if you want to know more about how to do what's in your heart to do. Uh, part of the trouble in doing a series on vision and values is that you're just casting a vision, and I realize that this may, at the end of the day, not be helpful. The other thing that I would recommend wholeheartedly, I come back to it over and over again, is the book Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. John Piper writes this. God is not glorified when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized, uneducated, unmedicated, and unfed millions. The evidence that many professing Christians has, have been deceived by this doctrine is how little they give and how much they own. God has prospered them, and by an almost irresistible law of consumer culture, baptized by a doctrine of health, wealth, and prosperity, they have bought bigger and more houses, newer and more cars, fancier and more clothes, better and more meat, and all matter of trinkets and gadgets, and containers and devices and equipment to make life more fun. They will object, does not the Old Testament promise that God will prosper His people? Indeed, God increases your yield so that by giving we can prove our yield is not our God. God does not prosper a man's business so that he can move from a Ford to a Cadillac. God prospers a business so that 17,000 unreached peoples can be reached with the gospel. He prospers the business so that 12% of the world's population can move a step back from the precipice of starvation. That's why God blesses. That's why God gives. What's our motivation for this type of behavior? Why would we do this? What's our motivation Verse 19, 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that. An eternal perspective is the only thing that fuels this type of living. If this life is all there is, don't do anything I'm telling you to do today. If this is it, if when you die, you cease to exist, just ignore everything I'm telling you. But if you believe that there's an age to come, and and if you believe in eternity, and that we'll be with Him for eternity, then you should tune in to what I'm saying this morning. Because our fuel, our motivation for living this type of life, for being generous in these types of ways, is an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective is the only thing that makes sense of this story where Jesus celebrates a widow giving everything she has. Jesus is obviously seeing this scenario through the eyes of eternity. Otherwise, he would stop it from happening. If a widow came forward today and tried to drop her two copper coins off, I would probably stop her from doing it. No, 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 no. That's all you've got. Surely God understands. Oh, no, 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 we, we get it. No, 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 don't do that. Please don't do that. We would condemn her for the thing that Jesus commended her for. Jesus had the eyes of eternity on. It's the only thing that makes sense of him commending this widow for what she had done. I love I love the reference here, the life that is truly life. There's a life that is truly life. Isn't isn't it Jesus when he told us not to worry? When he says to us, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life, what what, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear. And then he says this comment, isn't life more than this? If this life is all there is, don't do anything that I'm telling you today. But if there is something else, if there's an age to come, if in fact what we do in this life is the foundation for what happens in eternity, if we can, by giving and by being generous, lay up a foundation in the age to come, then this is what we want to be doing. Jesus rarely condemns rich people. He doesn't say having and storing up treasure for yourself is wrong. He actually, it's worse. He says it's stupid. It's not that it's morally wrong to have the stuff. It's that you're short-sighted, you're blind, and it's not a wise investment. Hebrews eleven twenty four 24. By faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. The only reason to give up pleasure in this life, the only reason to give up comfort in this life, the reason that Moses gave up pleasure and comfort is because he was looking ahead. 
He knew that this wasn't it. This is not all there is. And in fact, this is just a moment. And what we do in this life, right, says Russell Crowe, echoes into eternity. We lay up a foundation. And what we do in this life matters. The way we forego pleasure in this life is to look forward to the next. Jesus doesn't just say, don't store up treasure. He actually says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. No, 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 don't. Command the rich, don't do this, don't do this. No, command the rich, do this. Invest in eternity. Lay up for yourself a foundation in eternity where this stuff can't rot, it can't go away. Where it doesn't perish, do that. It's a wise investment. If eternity is real and there's something more to life than this life, then it's actually wise to let go of what you have and invest it in what echoes into eternity. We see time as Christians in light of eternity. We view the present in light of the future. We look beyond sacrifice to the great reward. That's how we make the sacrifices we do. We bear the cross because we're anticipating the crown. There's payoffs for us. Let's not pretend like we're just martyrs here. There's perks. Jesus understands this system. I get Avery to eat all kinds of stuff because of what's promised. You eat that, and then you get this. And we like to think we're so beyond that. Everything you do is because there's a payoff. Jesus understands this. And he says, look, if you're looking for the payoff, if you're looking to invest, you shouldn't do it here. This is an unwise investment. You should store it up here. I'll give you a couple C.S. Lewis quotes and then we'll close. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. The reality of eternity is our fuel for this type of generosity. You don't stand a chance without being connected to or seeing life through an eternal perspective. We bear the cross looking forward to the crown. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. God, we we come to you recognizing that we always say we'll pray about it. And it's just immunity, and sometimes it's just an excuse. And we say it just to get people off our backs. But that's not the case this morning. We realize that our hope has migrated, that we've misplaced our trust that we have disordered desires, that we're looking to riches and not to the one who richly provides for us. And I just pray that you would speak to us right now. What are we to do? 
What are we to do? How can we reflect you? How can we reflect you, Jesus? Jesus, you, you opened your hands and you let go of what you had. The riches of heaven were yours and you opened your hands and you let go of those. You emptied yourself. And through this act, you saved us. You didn't just saved, uh, save us, you saved people from every tribe and every tongue. We want to see the same power flow through us. We want to partner with you and, and do what's generous and do what's just. So we open our hands with what we've got. We just recognize this morning that we're the rich. We're the top 1% of the wage earners in this world. What do you want to do? What do you want to do through us? I want to ask Holy Spirit that you'd speak to people specifically and that Holy Spirit, you'd empower us to be obedient. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time.